Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From the Smithsonian Magazine. Remember how we were talking about that guy in Norway, Erland Bohr, who had only been metal detecting for a number of months when he found this like 1,500-year-old gold jewelry just hanging out? Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, consider this, Scandinavia, your official summons to all get a metal detector. Uh-oh. Because I don't know, is it climate change or something? <laughs> but- Another Norwegian family unearthed a 1,200-year-old Viking artifact in their yard because that's just the thing that's happening now. And what's funny is they were looking for a gold earring that had been lost, hence the metal detector. But, oh, whoops, here are some bronze (laughs) brooches that are ancient. Yeah, they were obviously not looking for this at all. (laughs) Now, the larger one of the two is oval-shaped, and it was likely to fasten the shoulder straps of a woman's halter style dress according to what they're thinking but the older smaller brooch which was circular they haven't really been able to sort of identify that one but both objects have been engraved with elaborate depictions of animals as well as geometric patterns according to live sciences tom metcalf Hmm. archaeologists think they were once covered in gold based on traces still present on the items And they were thinking that maybe an aristocratic Viking woman was probably buried at the site some 1,200 (gasps) years ago. So there might be bones, too, like they haven't finished (laughs) looking. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. I mean, it suggests that because it's artifacts and maybe a burial site, they're thinking maybe Vikings Mm. once lived on the island. Now, previously, researchers had found some piles of loose rock known as cairns on the southwestern part of Jomfreland. But because historical records go back only to the Middle Ages, they couldn't be totally sure. Mm. So authorities are not sure what will happen at the site. For now, the next step is to assess whether the site is in danger of deterioration. If it's safe there, then it will probably not be dug but preserved where it is. Mm. Although I have to confess a bit of confusion because isn't everything in danger of deterioration? <laughs> right. Much always, yeah. But- well, and also, this is somebody's backyard. Like, it's all well and good yeah. to be like, I went up on a plateau <laughs> and found something cool. Do you really want a full team of archaeologists in your backyard oh, no. for a year or two? No, no, no. I mean, no, depends no, no. on how much they are paying. Right. And I'm pretty sure it's nothing. Like, that. this is one of those things where it belongs to the state and you get a finder's well, fee. And- this is Norway. Mm. So the way their government municipal funding works is maybe a little different than we're used to here in right, where we right, are. Right, right, right. True, true. Anyway, they have found some other brooches in this fashion. I think in 2020, a metal detectorist stumbled upon a rare early medieval brooch in Somerset, England. Uh, If you want to see that one, it's going to be on view at the Museum of Somerset later this month. But uh, yeah, Europe, Scandinavia, get your metal detector on what else is out there. Yeah, they they moved the headstones, but they didn't move the bodies, you guys. (laughs) Like, you got to get under there. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, which is funny because historically it's kind of the same, right? Oh, Vikings used to live here. This is their burial ground. And so far the tone of all of this has been like exciting discovery, but let's dig them up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Versus here, but you know, maybe we're superstitious because we know we've got a karmic debt that I think I feel like we're paying it right now. Yeah, <laughs> like the modern Norwegians don't feel responsible for the death of the Vikings, right. so it's you know right, it's fine. Right, right. Heck, right. they're descendants, probably. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Okay, this comes from the Guardian. We still make judgments from the way people talk. Yeah. A hundred percent I do. I don't I won't deny it. Oh, we all do, yeah. And granted, this article is from the British perspective, but I believe the sentiment still applies here. Mm-hmm. Our story focuses on Rob Drummond, a sociolinguistics professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. He says, I have this particular facial expression that indicates when I've stopped listening to the content <laughs> of what someone's saying and I'm thinking about their accent. Apparently, I start to quietly recreate the interesting sounds under my breath. Oh, no. And I must admit, I do a bit of parroting as well. Yeah. But Drummond's fascination with the way we talk began while teaching English as a foreign language. So in Manchester in the early 2000s, some of his international students would take on a noticeable Manchester accent. Others wouldn't. Which led to his PhD. Why some Polish people in Manchester acquire a Manchester accent and some do not. Hmm. The results were fascinating. Well, interesting. Right. (laughs) (laughs) People who intended to settle acquired a local accent quicker than those that were just there temporarily. Ah. So he, he started to see accents as a way of associating or distancing yourself from a certain group. Given the UK's small size, there's actually a huge accent variation. Mm-hmm. So many people from groups traveled to these islands historically. First, the native Celtic groups, then Germanic and Anglo-Saxon arrivals, Romans, Vikings, Normans. From all these sources, Old English emerged. And for centuries, it was a shared language. So until the 1400s, Drummond suggests there was little evidence of accent hierarchy in Britain. But when language became standardized, however, we start to see a more prestigious variety being asserted. And in 1470, William Caxton set up England's first printing press. Since the seat of power is in the southeast of England, royals, politicians, Oxford, Cambridge, Hmm. this variety of English is used in print. Therefore, it becomes more prestigious. Hmm. And in 1922, the BBC selected received pronunciation, RP, Mm -hmm. as its broadcasting standard. And this is where it gets British specific in his examples. So I'll give you my best American equivalent while simultaneously <laughs> trying not to be offensive. Right. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> he says voices of power are almost always RP. So mm-hmm. for us, think of it like standard clean American accents is spoken by heroes and heroines in movies mm-hmm. and TV. Like any one of the Chris's, the Pines, the Evans, right. the Pratt's. <laughs> Just not the Hemsworths. <laughs> also, in film or TV, in England, comedy characters will have a northern accent, the equivalent to a southern accent here in the mm-hmm. U.S. Think, you know, get her done. Right. Because what he means by comedy here, by the way, is he's trying to say unpolished, uneducated in the most PC British way. <laughs> right. Because right. it's usually what's implied by a northerner accent in the U.K. And let's be honest implied with a southern character here in the u.s yeah. sure yeah what about the untrustworthy character ah that'll be eastern european 
Okay, okay, that's that's the same here. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one applies. And of course, all that reinforces expectations, which are subjective and arbitrary. When he asked his students to rate different UK accents for friendliness, kindness, or intelligence, the UK students will repeat stereotypes. For international students without social context, don't have that pattern. And it's because we're surrounded by it all the time, he says, both in media and with derogatory comments about accents still far too generally accepted. But it goes both ways. I think when most Americans hear a posh English accent, or really any English accent other than Cockney, they assume prestige, intelligence, authority. But that may be far from the truth. Yeah, I think British accents often get to be evil as well. Like they're very mm-hmm. intelligent, but they're also bent on world domination, which isn't necessarily that far off from where England used to be. Yeah. So <laughs> that's right. It's the accent of imperialism, right? right? Of colonialism, go. of extractive capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> so while the impacts of the accent, you know, as you mentioned, are tangible, the distinctions are irrational. Mm-hmm. Take the dropping of the G like swimming, cooking. Mm. That is used today associated with working class people. Lazy speech. But 100 years ago, the opposite was true. Hunting, shooting, fishing was a stereotype of the landed gentry. Mm. Oh. So we see this with other speeches too. Like take vocal fry or rising intonation at the end of a sentence. Both are stereotyped as airheady in women, mm-hmm. but powerful in men, he says. But here, I'm going to argue that rising intonation (laughs) at the end of a sentence in a man doesn't make him sound more powerful at all. Nice. So I don't know where he got that. (laughs) But vocal fry, I get all right, all right, all right. Uh Or I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And Drummond certainly doesn't argue that accents are unimportant. Lots of British and American culture is becoming fairly homogenous. But he says, we need to stop making assumptions based on accents, whether positive or negative. Yeah, I agree, but... Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very easy statement to make. It's like, we shouldn't be bigoted. Okay, yeah, you're totally (laughs) right, man. Like, (laughs) problem solved. (laughs) The article then has a bunch of personal stories of people who changed their accents to fit in for some reason. Which I can understand. I never thought I had much of an accent until I spent a lot of time in New York and kept getting called Texas boy. Right, right. Uh It may have been because I was wearing boots, chaps, and a hat. Right, right. It was my accent. (laughs) It was my accent. Yeah. No, I've been accused multiple times of, oh, where did you grow up? And I'm like, I grew up in Austin my whole life. And they're like, no. You didn't. I'm like, I did. I don't know what, like, and it's partly like what you said. Like, I've always had a sense that a Southern accent equals dumb. And also Mm -hmm. my father's from New Jersey. So I have, I had that as a model. And I sort of Mm. ended up with this weird amalgam where certain words come out very New Jersey and people like literally I've been accused of lying. They're like, you are not from Austin. Quit it. Where are you from? And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I am from Austin. I promise. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I've got one from The Guardian. It's pretty long, but I'll tighten it up a little bit. It's called. What would happen if Russia invaded Finland? I went to a giant war game in London to find out. Oh. And the reason this article is so long is that the author basically lays out the entire narrative that ends up happening in this war game. 
But the larger lesson of the event and of all war games is that the people playing them get a chance to practice diplomacy and negotiations to see how certain decisions play out so that hopefully we don't annihilate ourselves in the real world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> or are we just training it to think of more efficient ways? Exactly, to <laughs> exactly. We're just figuring out the best way. <laughs> So this particular game happens every year in a place called Bush House in London, and it's sponsored by academics from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And the people who sign up come from all walks of life, from people who actually work at NATO and other military organizations to random diplomats and professors and students from all over the world. But whoever they are, they are expected to take on the roles they're given and not, as the article mentions in one case, be like the Italian general who made a serious faux pas by showing up in his uniform with his actual stars displayed. Because <laughs> anybody can be anybody in this game. They're like, oh, you're a 21-year-old student. You're now the premier of Russia. Like, they, you know, they don't... that's kind of how it used to be back in the day, right? Someone a little gave bit. birth to someone, they're six years old. Yeah, you're in charge, whatever. Yeah, you're the king now. Or if somebody shows up in the uniform, I, I guess they're in charge. Yeah. <laughs> a uniform is very powerful. <laughs> But while a lot of war games are set up with the goal of winning at all costs, the goal of this game is to get what you want, but also to stay as a group under a particular number of tokens that represent worldwide escalation and theoretically world war. The key is you don't know how many tokens the other teams have collected. So there's mm. this push-pull of wanting to come out on top, but not being able to just nuke whoever you want because then you all lose, just like in the real world. And it goes pretty deeply into the personal profiles of some of the players, like how a mild-mannered professor started out being very cautious, but by the end was taking the most extreme military responses possible, versus, say, a corporate woman who had started out as part of the highest Russian command, but ultimately stepped down to a subcommittee where she felt like she could actually accomplish something for her, quote, people. And it is pretty interesting if you want to dive into all of it as an examination of human character, but the end result was... When the game was over, the group was told that the token limit had been 115, and they had accumulated 114, which was apparently shocking to all of them because no one felt like they'd been especially horrible, but they'd come this close to annihilating the world. Which is all well and good. They came close, but they lived. They felt good about themselves, except the article ends with the note that a few days later, the game master emailed the reporter to say there was a miscount and the group actually had 116 and there's no hope for humanity. <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah. tracks. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, you know, just a little mm -hmm. nice hopeful end on that one. It does seem like war games are helpful. Like, I do think there's some value in practicing negotiation, practicing diplomacy. I mean, you can always find people online saying, like, it should be a requirement for all politicians to place admire civilization or whatever before they're allowed to hold public office. <laughs> and I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. Yeah, definitely Stratego, though. They definitely right. have to play that. Yeah. And Minesweeper. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just seeing a whole bunch of like prep sessions with Risk, the actual board game, and just a whole bunch of people flipping tables. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's always the problem is like you get into this deep game theory of like, okay, this is the correct way to play. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, sometimes you got a crazy guy. And he's not going to play by the rules and he's not going to do what you expect. And so you have to be able to step back from that and be like, look, this isn't just a standard game of chess. Sometimes somebody is flipping the table and you've right. got to do something about that guy. Right. We'll put the rook in the wrong spot and there's nothing you can do about That's it. That's right. Does he not uh -huh. know standard true movements? <laughs> like... <laughs> right. Or does he not care? Yeah. He wants to start a war. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Next link. 
Next link. All right. We're going to bring it back to Earth with some ZME science. Specifically, why giraffes have purple tongues. Oh, I kind of always thought they were black, but I guess they're kind of purplish, grayish. Yeah. You know, yeah, we can go ahead and call them black. I mean, that's partly because it's melanin, baby. Yeah. It's nature's sunscreen because they're mega herbivores, right? Hmm. So they spend a lot of time eating and grazing for food. And they are typically picking leaves off of treetops. And they mm-hmm. don't eat all at once either. They can spend 20 hours a day just walking tree to tree. Huh. And they can eat anywhere between 15 to 75 pounds of leaves a day. OMG. So hmm. really, without protection, that tongue would be sunburned, which mm-hmm. is kind of an evolutionary disadvantage. And in the scientific world, this detail is a you know stark evolutionary adaptation, right? And it's not just purple, as you noted. It's a specific shade that leans more towards blue or black, just depending mm-hmm. on the lighting. But to make things more interesting, only the anterior parts of the tongue are melanized. If you were to pull out a giraffe's tongue, you would see that the middle and posterior parts are still a run-of-the-mill baby pink color. Mm -hmm. They are also ridiculously long. (laughs) An Mm -hmm. average giraffe tongue measures in at about 50 centimeters. Wow. And again, this comes down to the fact that they are mega herbivores. They have almost no competition except for elephants to contend with when it comes to their particular diet. And all that grows at heights of 15 feet and above is pretty much their domain, especially the acacia tree, which is a species of tree commonly found across the Serengeti. It's thorny as heck. There is a picture and it's basically like a barbed wire tree. (laughs) The thorns are like the size of a finger and they stick out willy-nilly all across all the branches. But giraffes are super good at eating acacia in particular. They use their elongated and dexterous tongues to basically slip around the thorns. They go straight for the leaves. It's some kind of muscle memory. They just know how to strip those leaves and not get poked. But Mm. hey, if they did get poked, No big, because giraffe saliva, it is antiseptic, so they can just salivate and lick to make the wound better. I'm sorry. I'm honestly surprised that we as humans didn't take advantage of that. Yeah, we should be milking giraffes for their saliva and sending it to hospitals. Like, I mean, if this stuff is good, I don't know. You know, fair enough. But maybe it's not just giraffes that have this talent. And it's certainly not when it comes to the color of their tongue. For example, the okapi, and there's a lovely picture, but basically if you were to toss in a zebra, a giraffe, and a deer, (laughs) you would get an okapi. They happen to be the giraffe's only living relative, and they (laughs) have that distinctly colored purple-blue tongue. You can find okapis in the canopied rainforests of Central Africa, but they tend to be in really dense, dark canopies, so... Why the purple tongue, right? It's not the same sunlight situation as the giraffe. Well, sunlight does make it to the ground in such a place, and it comes down to tree fall gaps. So rainforests in particular, they're ancient. Trees in the rainforest, there's a good chance that they're over half a century old. And when giant trees like these with big girths fall down, they leave a literal hole in the canopy. And through these holes emerge the opportunity for new growth, and thus life on the forest floor. Mm -hmm. So it's in the grounds directly under tree fall gaps that okapis love to graze in. 
And ironically, the only area in a rainforest that receives enough sunlight to warrant possessing some form of sunscreen. Or I'm wondering, I mean, again, I'm no biologist, or did they evolve back to being short? Right, because right? now they've got the forest floors and so, yeah. Like whales, right? Like, because whales were just mammals that got back in the water. Mm-hmm. And then didn't have competition, had a lot to eat, got real big. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. But for whatever reason, the okapi does also have a prehensile and dexterous tongue. The author notes that they are able to clean their own ears with their tongue. It's so long, Ew. which, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> you know, hygiene. Yeah, yeah, you need to have a little bit of cleanliness. Better than a Q-tip. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's see, who else has a blue purplish tongue? Polar bears. And it's also a sunlight thing, but in their case, they want to absorb as much mm-hmm. sunlight and heat as they can because of where they are. There are some reptiles that have purple tongues. They go into skinks a little bit. Apparently, they use those blue tongues as a last-ditch measure against predators, so it kind of looks a little scary, like, ah, what is that? <laughs> so, And they've got a little video where they've got a blue tongue lizard trying to dissuade a bird. I haven't watched it, just in case. I'm a little scared of lizards. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Another cool fact about lizards' tongues is that they're not just blue. They have UV blue tongues, which means when seen under ultraviolet light, they're basically like rave black they light glow. poster tongues. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I My dog has little melanin spots on her tongue, and I initially Aww. was like, this seems like a problem. And the vet was like, nah, it's fine. But it does <laughs> feel like the spots are getting bigger as she gets older, which mm. the vet, again, was like, it's not a problem. Like, they can just sort of change their coloration sometimes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. They've got fur on the rest of their body, but their tongue, mm-hmm. you know, they pant. Their tongue goes out in the sun sometimes. It feels yeah. like give it another couple hundred generations, maybe dogs will have black tongues. That's right. Maybe in 100, 200 years, we can clean our own ears with our tongues. One can only hope. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know that I will, but I could. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay. From Mast. Why circus peanuts practically disappeared? Because oh, they deserve to? Because they're gross. Yeah, <laughs> they're disgusting. I assume we're talking about the candy, not like just peanuts. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. The circus peanut candy. But let's cool. explore a little bit. So the candy is neither a peanut nor prominently found at circuses. <laughs> circus peanuts are more of an anomaly than anything else in the 21st century. In fact, The antiquated candy is the redheaded or orange-hued stepchild of the (laughs) confectionery world. Now, that's not my metaphor. That came from the article. I'm sorry, redheaded stepchildren out there. We love you too, just not as much as your brother. (laughs) So despite being the bane of trick-or-treaters Halloween candy bags for some time, circus peanuts somehow remain available to modern candy seekers. Wow. It's a fact that the spongy, non-peanut-flavored, but peanut-shaped sweet with a banana taste is an antiquity from another era, as it was originally created at some unspecified point during the 1800s. Wow, I didn't realize they were that old. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense. It's almost like the lion dance in Chinese New Year. That's no lion, but it's the best they could do, right? So, <laughs> so, so here's a peanut, and it tastes like banana. We don't, we've never actually tasted a peanut, but a yeah, peanut, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, if a food item is orange, well, you'd obviously expect that food to taste like bananas, right? <laughs> right. Well, of course right, not. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's ignore the taste for a second and look at possibly another reason for their downfall. It also lacked individually wrapped packaging. And of course, the urban legends surrounding poisoned Halloween candy, those irrational fears seem to indicate at least one reason for the peanut's drastic 
find since hmm. the mid 20th century. Yeah, who's dropping loose unwrapped candy into a bucket? That's mm-hmm. nobody wants that. Someone anymore. who's biting into it and expecting it to taste like a dadgum peanut is who? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And to be fair, it does appear that at least one company offers a circus peanut product where each candy is individually wrapped, but that seems like a modern invention, like too mm-hmm. little too late. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) what's even more crazy is that despite being one of the least popular candies on the market, when it comes to how circus peanuts are actually made, the process is almost laughably difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Apparently, circus peanuts are enormously challenging to nail and have even been described by Spangler Candy as the most difficult candy production-wise made by the company. Oh, my God. Put it out of its misery. Yeah, more than than anything, it seems ensuring the final product remains an appropriate amount of moisture is the trickiest part. And then the surprisingly time-consuming preparation process for making circus peanuts includes a 24-hour drying period in a temperature-controlled room. Hmm. Fussy, fussy. Yeah. yeah, and then again, another reason for its decline, too much competition. There's just so much better, tastier candies out there. Sure. I mean, I guess my only question is, like, I can see all the reasons why they're no longer big or popular. Why do they even still exist? Great segue, because the short answer, nostalgia. Because mm. the boomers have enough money to keep their dumb candy alive. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, some of that. Some of that, yeah. Perhaps an individual has their own fond memories, right? Or... Maybe a person is driven by the desire to purchase and eat candy that was popular well before they were born. Yeah, it's like trucker hats. They're ironically (laughs) enjoying bad candy. Exactly. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next one is from ZME Science, and it might be a bit of a bummer for some of our listeners. It's called Cannabis Doesn't Make You More Creative. It makes you think you're more creative. Yeah, that sounds yep. about right. Yeah. <laughs> now, certainly there are a lot of famously creative people who swear by the loosening and perhaps inspirational effects of cannabis, including Steve Jobs, who said, quote, The best way I could describe the effect of the marijuana and hashish is that it would make me relaxed and creative. But we actually know relatively little about the effects of weed on the body and mind because it has been technically illegal for so mm-hmm. long. And obviously, there are some really thorny social and political issues wrapped up in who has historically been forgiven and who gets the book thrown at them for pot use. But it's fair to say that it's been pretty difficult to get formal scientific funding to study it. And even now that many states and countries have fully legalized it, there is apparently still this feeling in the scientific community that it's unethical to ask non-cannabis users to participate in a cannabis study even though we ask people to test all sorts of other drugs all the time in pharmaceutical studies. Do we ask them to drink? Do we do alcohol studies? I'm I curious. don't know. I Maybe yeah, we do. You know, but you're right. We also ask people to test equivalency of heroin. Yeah, we ask people <laughs> to test morphine. That's basically uh-huh, yeah, heroin. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But fortunately, there's enough people out there who do choose to use cannabis on their own and who are willing to participate in studies that we are finally getting some actual data about what cannabis does and does not do for us. Case in point. A joint study from the University Pun intended, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) From the University of Washington and the National University of Singapore wanted to examine the conventional wisdom that says you shouldn't get high at work. Wait, wait, wait. From Singapore. Yeah. That's some context there. They won't let you chew gum, so Well, and the University of Washington. I mean, come on. Like (laughs) Yeah, the polar opposite. True. True. (laughs) 
So they might find truth in the middle. You're right. Yeah. You're well, right. everybody in Singapore was like, we don't have anyone who smokes here. Where can we find some? <laughs> Washington State. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> But, you know, if Steve Jobs is to be believed, you absolutely should get high at work, right? So they recruited over 300 regular consumers of cannabis from Washington State and split them into two studies. In the first study, the participants had to name all the different ways they could think of to use a brick, which is sort of like a classic test of creativity that's been used in a lot of different contexts. You know, your basic uncreative answers are sort of like, it's a doorstop, it's a paperweight. Whereas more creative people start going off on how you could put it in a slingshot and hunt lions with it or whatever. (laughs) And by the way, adults tend to be in the it's a doorstop category and children tend to be in the much more creative category with that particular test. Or improv people are probably really creative with that. Exactly. It's a hat. It's a shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's kind of telling that the thing I came up with was it's a weapon. (laughs) 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 The second study, meanwhile, was a little less open-ended where participants had to imagine they worked for a consulting firm that had been hired to help a local band increase their revenue. And again, they had to come up with as many creative marketing ideas as possible. Creative marketing ideas? Okay. I mean, you know. I'm going to zoom out on this one. All right. right, right. (laughs) Okay. But in both cases, the scientists found no difference in the actual measured creativity of participants who had smoked a joint 15 minutes before the study versus those who had abstained for at least 12 hours. On the other hand, that means they weren't any less creative either. It had no effect. (laughs) That's remarkable. Yeah, it's actually not a terrible result, all things considered. What it did have an effect on, though, was the perception of how good their ideas were. In both studies, the people who were high rated both their own and others' ideas as more impressive than the sober people did. And so the researchers concluded that when it comes to cannabis in the workplace, it's actually a mixed bag. Because if your job is to be creative, then occasional pot use is not a problem. It's not going to help you or hurt you. But if your job is to evaluate other people's ideas in sort of a managerial or curating role, then it may cause you to overestimate how good an idea really is. And you should not be smoking pot at work. Hmm. And my takeaway from all this, because I'm very devious, is that if you are a creative person who's going into a pitch meeting or a presentation, you maybe want to put some brownies on your boss's desk in order to make sure your idea gets approved. Like, use that to your advantage, you know? Or even, Uh like, (laughs) just the... (laughs) Sorry, I lost. <laughs> Are you high right now? Angie? I am not that... high right now. I'm not going to show you. Well, maybe you. you need to be. That's the problem. Oh, here's That's the right. no. Here's the other use case where it's a good idea to be high on the job. If you are like a manager, a people manager, and you really need to boost the confidence of everybody on your team. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was such a good idea, Kevin. Yes, you should present that. <laughs> it's like trust falls, but you know, medicinal. <laughs> like get everybody bonded over a weekend in loincloths and weed. Yeah, so coming from the music side of this, uh, (laughs) I can attest to this firsthand. My uh, band members, all three of them were tripping. I was not. (laughs) At the end of the show, they were all high-fiving each other. That was the best show! I was like, that was the worst show we've (laughs) ever had. We've ever done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about, the best show? So I could definitely see that in a high-drug atmosphere that is music. (laughs) But as long as the audience is also high, then it's fine. Like, Mm -hmm. they enjoyed it, too. Right. Or you have, like, ultra creatives like the Frank Zappa, who people assumed Mm -hmm. were on drugs, but were sober. 
yeah, their yeah, weirdness yeah. came from internal. Yeah, yeah, their brain just was that way. They didn't need mm-hmm. any drugs. <laughs> right. If they did, they might have gone into banking or something. Actually. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. From The Guardian. We're going to talk about the grizzlies who dine on 40,000 moths per day. That is a lot of moths. <laughs> it is a lot of moths. Well, they're not that big. so mm. But they are loaded with calories. So much so that they are referred to by biologists as butter for bears. Mm-mm-mm. Ew. Bear butter. <laughs> don't look that up. <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. I know, but don't look it up. <laughs> Stay away. Yeah, uh-huh. keep your algorithms pure and just listen to <laughs> our take here because we are specifically talking about tiny army cutworm moths and hmm. they provide a surprisingly nutritious meal for grizzly bears. But like we do, humans are getting in the way. Mm. So let's go to the barren mountain slopes of northwest Wyoming. Barren mountain? Wow, the puns on these are (laughs) crazy. (laughs) So big game animals in this part of the world, they're few and far between. But for a couple of months every summer, this stark landscape becomes a high-calorie buffet for hundreds of grizzly bears in the Rocky Mountain West. Now, as far as moths go... Moths on the whole are pretty small, but the army cutworm moth is relatively large. It's about hmm. half the size of a thumb. Okay, sizable. Yeah, right. And it's pretty drab when you look at it from afar. But if you look at it up close, it's got this dizzying array of tan and brown geometric designs that cover its furry <laughs> wings. Tan and brown. Wow. I mean, listen. <laughs> Shades of sepia and burnt umber. Uh-huh. Listen, they're beautiful. Okay. Now, these moths migrate to the mountain peaks by the hundreds of millions every summer, and they can travel over a thousand miles away from as far as Canada's Northwest Territories. And each gram of moth offers bears about eight calories, which means some bears will eat up to 40,000 a day. But not 40,000 and one. They know their limit. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking averages here. This is science, right? (laughs) Right. Now, Frank Van Manen, leader of the interagency grizzly bear study team with the U.S. Geological Survey, says a bear could, in about a month's time, get one third of the calories they need to build up fat for hibernation at these moth sites. It's impressive. It's like the Nathan's hot dog eating contest of the wild world, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess they must be swarms. Like, I I can't imagine getting 40,000 individual bites. You have to be Mm -hmm. just sort of like sweeping through the swarm and you catch a couple hundred. Or running through it with his mouth open like a whale. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Or like on a motorcycle where the bugs (laughs) hit your windshield. Well, that whole human curiosity of how exactly this looks is part of the problem, you see, because, Uh, yep, we keep hearing about this. Some people are filming it, getting curious that people are starting to camp out at these areas. mm. And what sucks especially is that these moths have become super important because other food sources like white bark pine nuts and cutthroat trout, they have been hit by global heating, disease, and invasive species. But Despite all these changes, the army cutworm moth population has remained remarkably stable, which is why it remains a critical ingredient in the grizzly bear's continued recovery in the U.S. So because of that, scientists are on a quest to better understand the moths, their life cycle, their migratory routes, and their health, because their fate could be intertwined with the grizzly. So several years ago, researchers with the U.S. Forest Service contacted an entomology professor at Montana State asking him if grad students 
would be interested in studying moths. They wanted to know where the moths come from, how many arrive each year, how important they are to bears' diets, and pour one out for grad students and the thankless work they do. Because this process that requires counting moth heads buried in almost 300 piles of bear poop. Yeah, that had to get done. Uh, yeah. That had to get done. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the project went on. They spent several summers collecting moths from more than the 30 sites in northwest Wyoming, analyzed them in a lab. They were also able to determine the way that these moths move geographically because the plants each caterpillar eats has a unique water signature known as a stable isotope. And moth wings retain that signature, which is how they were able to compare the staple isotope to regional water information and figure out where these moths were coming from. Crazy. Yeah, totally amazing. For now, they think the army cutworm moth population remains healthy, but please stop scaring the bears. Yeah, but how am I going to get my selfie next to the bear like that? Right. Literally the worst. And here's the other thing. People only respond to selfish arguments. So let me make one. For every bear you scare off, that's 40,000 extra moths. Like, you want your tent surrounded by that many moths? We need the bears eating these things or they're going to go out of control. That's the best case we could have made. I'm going to end that there. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Rise and Fall of the Blackberry, Old pinball machines are amazingly complex, and how eclipses have shaped history. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.